0: Okay, welcome to another edition of a Culture Class Podcast, a podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about other cultures from around the world. Uh, today, I have my friend June from Florida uh, on the podcast today. Uh, June is a chaplain. He's an author. Um, he's a six degree black belt. <laughs> we'll talk about that one pretty soon. How's it going, man? Always sunny in Florida. What's going on?
1: sir, I am glad to be with you on the podcast. Very, very glad. I know we had some timing issues and I'm glad we can make it work this time. And uh, I've been listening to your podcast, by the way. So I got to give you a shout out. It's, It's really good. You ask good questions. I love the conversation. So I'm glad to
0: be here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And believe it or not, you're not the, I mean, I've I've had timing issues for like a year and four months with a guest before. So yours wasn't that bad. It
1: was just like a week or two. Hey, things happen and it's all good. Completely understandable. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, okay, on
1: my end too, yeah.
0: <laughs> let's let's get into it, man. Let's get yeah. into it. So you grew up Korean American. What's that like? Like, what's that like? What was that like for you specifically? Because... um, According to popular culture, like it's really difficult growing up in an immigrant household. Like I'm first generation, so my parents didn't grow up here. I moved here from Nigeria, but um, is it safe to say um, your parents were here as well while you were growing up? What what was it like growing up Korean American?
1: Yeah, that is an excellent question. I I like to say that I had a hybrid hybrid upbringing. And so my parents were more, more or less came from a traditional Korean background. I think my mom was a little bit more Americanized than my dad. Uh, My mom probably came here in her 20s. My dad was in his 30s. Uh, They have a big age gap, but they both met in America, uh, in New York, in fact.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, then they had me and got married shortly after. But uh, I grew up in a very hybridized home. So, you know, we would eat on the floor, we'd have chopsticks, we'd take off our shoes, and, you know, they would speak Korean to me. But they would also speak um, in English, and at some point they only spoke in English to me, which is why today my Korean speaking isn't as good as it could be. But uh, I grew up with a lot of traditional values, while at the same time they. And you grew
0: had, up in New York.
1: Uh, I grew up in Florida. Yeah, so it's, oh, okay. so when my mom got pregnant, at the time they were like, I don't know if we can have a kid in New York, you know. So they they scrounged up some cash together and they moved here. But uh, yeah, um, I would say that. I grew up with a with a foot in two worlds, you know, with the east and the west. And as I grew up, because I grew up in Florida, I was often the only Asian American around, you know. And so, very slowly, that internalized racism set in, you know. Mm. So, the more that people hated me because of my, you know, race, because of my skin color, my ethnicity, uh, the more I began to hate myself. And so, at some point, I began to reject a lot of my Eastern roots. And I assimilated a lot more. And that probably had a lot to do with losing my language. I didn't like hanging out with other Asian people. When I would see Asians, I would stare at them and look at them kind of funny, you know? Or you ever had that thing happen to you where maybe, maybe you'll know what I'm talking about. Sometimes I, I would have been at a restaurant and I'll see a table full of other Asians and they're acting loud. And I feel bad that they're acting loud. Right. Right. I don't know right. if that makes sense to you, but I totally. start to feel weird. And my white friends would look at me like, You know, like I was the one acting, you know, like that. And, uh, but that shame would set was set deeply in as if I had to apologize for being Asian. Right. And it wasn't until about seven, eight years ago that I really began to rediscover my Eastern Asian, Asian roots.
0: You know, you know, mm-hmm. it's funny you said that, and I apologize for cutting you short. Like, no, 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 I to- no, no. I totally relate to what you were just talking about, because me being Nigerian, me being African, you have a lot of Nigerians who grew up here, right? I was fortunate to like move here in my mid twenties, right? But you have a lot of my cousins and you know people like that who grew up here, and like you said, like they start to. Act on Nigerian like if they had have a, have a Nigerian name like I don't know Modupe or something like no just call me Mo you know that kind of thing they don't want to speak their language eh, and they're kind of like ashamed when they see other Nigerians or Africans act in a certain way and it was not until I don't know what was it like Black Panther or something like. When you saw people start to embrace their Africanness at scale and, you know, with the rise of Afrobeats and all these Africans and Nigerians doing great things in the UFC, in different sports, like people then started to embrace their Africanness very recently, about five or six years ago. What was that trigger for you to make you start embracing your Eastern roots? Was it a particular thing in pop culture? Did you interact with someone who you looked up to? Like, what was that event? that happened that made you say, you know, six or seven years ago, you know what? I am Korean and I'm proud of it.
1: Yeah, to make a long story short, when I first became a chaplain about six years ago, uh, my chaplain supervisor, she asked this question. She asked me, uh, what would it look like to go back to your Asian roots? And the reason she asked me that, and I'm gonna try to make this long story short, is she was asking me, what do I do for self-care? What What does my what is my body comfortable with in order to feel like it's in a good rhythm? And I had grown up uh, in the dojo because my dad, he's a ninth degree black belt. Oh, and wow. And so I grew up, yeah, learning martial arts. So Have you ever said, taken
0: him on? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so with that you, laugh, I'll say no. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah, when you said UFC, I mean, I'm thinking of like, uh, who is it, Francis Nagano or tomorrow mm-hmm. Husman, those guys, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the dojo. And so part of that internalized uh, self-hatred was I I liked martial arts and I also hated martial arts because my dad pushed me so hard. I mean, he really pushed me and I've retired since then. But when um, my supervisor asked me in a one-on-one supervision we would have those once or twice a week. She asked me like, what does your body do to, you know and I said, well, you know I grew up in martial arts my whole life. And part of me hates it, part of me loves it. Uh, but I think my body naturally, because I was born I was trained to do this, I punch a bag or you know I I expel a lot of energy doing martial arts or I do a lot of conditioning in order to get self-care. And she said, why don't you go back to that? And I said, man, there's something about martial arts that I have an aversion to it. I, I, but then that's when she asked the question, well, what would it look like to get back to your your Asian Eastern roots? And I think what she was trying to say is, how can I get back to my culture? The good parts of my heritage that are meaningful to me, the things that I was raised in that actually uh, give value or are, I guess, the, the good, honorable parts that I can rejoice in. Because, you know, in every culture, there's like the kind of pure, there's this, I guess you could call it the closed fist right here, where it's like the good, honorable parts of our heritage. And then you have kind of the toxic subculture around it right? That gets all mixed up. So for Asian culture, that would be, um, I guess it's a male dominated society. And sometimes the males, they have too much power and the women they don't have as much power, right? So every culture has something like that. And I think she was trying to ask me, can I get back to the real, real values of my culture? What are the good parts? Instead of just throwing it all out and looking at my culture as the toxic subculture, rather look at the the inside of it, the real part of it. And so that's when I started that discovery journey of yes, you know what? I am Korean American. I wear my race in my face. <laughs> you know, I can't hide from it. And there are parts of it that I loved and enjoyed and there that are a part of me because I was born in it and I was raised in it because I it was given as a gift to me. And it was a whole world that was reopened up for me, like like opening a gift that had just been in the corner this whole time. And uh these last six, seven years have, have really, really been it's painful sometimes but has been a great journey back into
0: who I am. Mm. You know, it's interesting you say say that, you know, trying to um, identify with the the good parts of your culture. Like being immigrants, do we have the luxury to do that? Like we can do that internally and say, you know what, I identify with X. Um, I don't identify with Y. I don't like how this culture is patriarchal or or whatever. And I don't want to, you know, imbibe that in, in some way. But being from that culture, Like a lot of people generalize a lot of stereotypes. And if there are supposedly bad things in quotes about that culture, like that assumption is thrust onto you being of that culture. So even if you're trying to be selective in a way, do you really have that luxury to be selective if everyone else is looking at you, maybe from the bad side or the good or even both? Like, how does that even work? Or is this just like a self, um, you know, like being better for self? kind of kind of strategy
1: dang no so that is a that is a awesome awesome question man do we even right right yeah because there's like there's internal work that we do with struggling with parts of our culture and then there's people who are going to oppress parts of our culture and generalize anyway and we're, it's like we're already trying to fight against the narrative that's false about who we are right and right so do we even have the luxury to work at those two levels and so here's a weird example and here's the way i see it Like if my parents do something wrong to me, I can vent to my friend and say, man, my dad did this or my mom did that, right? But then if my friend says, yeah, your mom, man, she stinks or your dad, he's no good. i am like, wait a minute. I can say that (laughs) about my parents, but you can't say that about my parents. Let me vent about my stuff, but don't don't insult my parents because they're my parents still, right? Yeah. So there's something about the internal work that is mine, And that is a part of me that I can criticize, that I can put a lens up to, that I can put a filter up to, right? But then if somebody else comes at me, they may take that and take it too far. And they may think they have the permission to do that when they really don't. And so I think there's an internal work that I can do within my own community, within the AAPI community, where there are things, for example, in the AAPI community right now, there's a bad problem with anti-blackness. It's Mm -hmm. real bad, right? And I say that to my own shame. And when I look at my parents, and when I look at the first generation, especially, there is there is a, a heavy, heavy element of anti-Blackness. I got to call that out in my own community. I got to keep us accountable, right? Um, but if somebody were to come along and say, oh, all y'all Asians are like this, or all y'all Asians do that, it's like, hey, hold up. <laughs> I'm inside my community. Let me call out my people. You're not in this community to be able to criticize from where you're standing. You know, and not to say that that person can't keep me accountable, but there are I think certain permissions, there are certain ways in which they can navigate and approach me that are appropriate. There are certain boundaries around that. So I think that sort of work requires um, a delicate touch. It requires kind of, hey, here's what's okay and here's what's not okay. And I think we, ha- for me, I got to do both. I do have to navigate the external layers of what other people's false perceptions are of me. And I need to navigate within my own culture, the things that are not healthy right now, that i need to call out and that i need to work on in myself and that's that's hard work it's not, it's not easy. <laughs> right.
0: It's almost like we were born for a certain role, right? Like if you see both sides of the divide, like I, I grew up in the military, right? And in the military barracks in Nigeria, like my dad was an officer, but we also had like the non-officers, like the junior officers, right? And most of my friends were in that side of the barrack, but not a lot of like officer kids went to that. So, But I could kind of like see both sides and translate and be that bridge. It almost looks the same being a second generation immigrant that you see both sides of the, the Divide you've existed in your culture, but you've also ventured out to see what's out there in the world, so it's almost like you're given a responsibility at birth. (laughs) <laughs> to translate between the two groups and kind of like, you know, bring the peace in a way. And we'll talk about a bunch of that stuff, particularly, you know, the anti-Asian hate that happened recently in the U.S. But let me touch a little bit about you growing up in the dojo, man. So when you say you grew up in the dojo, <laughs> like paint that picture for me. You were like two years old running around the dojo. Was that, is that what that meant? Or
1: yeah, you were yeah, taking classes
0: um... already when you were like
1: three I was uh, basically born into, I guess you could call it the dojo life. I mean, when I was born, my dad, he had already uh, opened up, he got some seed money and he opened up a dojo uh, in Florida. This was in in Clearwater. And uh, yeah, I grew up in that life. And I, <laughs> one of the first things my dad did when I was a baby was, and this is going to sound crazy and maybe it's abusive, but uh, he, when I was just a baby, would hang me upside down by my heels and stretch my legs down to my mm. ears. To split? To do a split. To make Wait, that's, sure. That's
0: even more than a split. Do you say to your ears? So it's going yeah, all the way, almost like yeah. a 180 kind of. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, wow.
1: And I'd be screaming and screaming, but he said the reason that he did that is because so I could remain permanently flexible. Now, mm. I don't know if that's <laughs> real science or not, uh, but he would do that because he was thinking he's going to be a teacher one day. He's going to be an instructor, a master one day. I got to do this. So uh, I, after school, I would always go straight to the dojo. There were classes in the evening. You know, you had the kids class, you had the uh, adults class, you, and I would do all the classes. And then as soon as wow. I got my black belt at uh, I think ten years old, I would teach the kids. You got your black belt at ten yeah. years old. Yeah, oh
0: I my was. God. Uh,
1: yeah, I was ten. I was oh ten. Oh my and then god! On Saturdays we would. You know, it's funny you ask me this. Nobody has asked me this on a podcast. You're the first person. Um, on Saturdays, I would take these brutal, brutal, like five-hour classes where, I mean, these guys were world champions. My dad had trained world champions who were in their 20s. Some of them had gone to the Pan Am Games. Some of them were training for like the Olympics and the, and the World Cup and all this stuff. And uh, these, these guys would spar like us, like little, like we're like 11 or 12, learning how to fight, learning how to spar. And uh, they, would, they would beat us up. I've had multiple concussions. My knees are shot. I got some lower back issues. Um, so I have multiple injuries. But uh, my dad at one point, I think I was probably 14. He said in four years at the next Olympics, uh, think about competing when you turn 18. And so I started training, uh, but at some point, it was just so much and my dad pushed me so hard. I, I honestly started to hate it. And I remember going to my dad one time and saying, uh I was in, I was probably, oh my gosh, 13, probably 14, probably around the time that Please he was don't tell me you
0: stood up to your to your dad who's a ninth degree right? black. This now. is Please one of the very few me. times. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's one of the very few times. I've I've probably, you know, maybe talked back to him three times in my life. That was one of them. Another time was when I told him that I marched for Black Lives Matter. I I told him about that. And, you know, we had a back and forth, but I told him I wanted to quit martial arts and I'm just a kid. And uh, my dad, literally, he just popped me right on the head. You know, he would call that chumokbap in Korean. That means knuckle sandwich, just right on top of the head and said, you can never quit. And so it was, it was pretty rough, man. I would say It's like when you think about, uh, (laughs) was it Bane said that I I was molded by it. I was raised from Dark Knight Rises when he talks about the Lazarus Pit and how he grew up rough. I mean, I was conditioned real, real rough. And there's certain stuff in my muscle memory that I've never forgotten. I mean, it's just tattooed in my brain forever. Were you an Uh, only child? No, I have a younger brother who he hated martial arts growing up. He just hated it. And now he runs two dojos. <laughs> oh, you guys
0: flipped. You, isn't yep. it interesting how immigrant parents kind of like thrust their hopes and dreams on their kids? You said your dad knew he was going to become a teacher. So he was already teaching his infant son how to stretch. Like one person in the African community or Nigerian community becomes a nurse in 1978. that everyone has to become a nurse. You know, nurse is yeah. the best. You either become a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer, or a disgrace. That kind of thing. So wow. it's pretty... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty interesting. What were, I mean, growing up, it was pretty tough for you, right? Growing up in a dojo with such a disciplined dad, who's like a nine degree black belt. But were there any lessons you took out of that, like in your work as a chaplain now or with the things you do with, you know, your community or other community you talked about marching in BLM that you can say, oh, I learned this from either, you know, some of the routine or the lessons or the disciplines that. I, I imbibed while I was training in the in, in that dojo for a couple of years.
1: You know, that's funny that you asked me that because I was just thinking, I talked pretty badly just now about martial arts, but there is so much good that I learned from it too. And it is part of a legacy, I mean, of you know, Korean tradition. You know, I mean, this is an art that's probably almost 2000 years old, uh, that came out of ancient kingdoms when the royal guard had to defend their nation. And it's all about self-defense and about safety. And it's all about how can I uh, have discipline over my own body and reach a certain type of peak performance. And, you know, these are kind of old school things that I haven't thought about in a long time, even, but that sense of discipline, and that sense of feeling like, I have autonomy over my own body, that's that's so valuable, you know? And when I became a chaplain, maybe maybe I didn't do this intentionally, but it, it was just a part of me because of years of martial arts, since I was a baby, basically. But when I go to visit these patients who, some of them are bedridden, some of them have chronic illness and injury, they can't use their bodies like they want to. Um, some of them are, you know, they're on the last lap of their life, they're on their deathbed. Everybody in these hospitals, they're there because they've had their health taken away somehow, their autonomy taken away. And I, as a chaplain who comes in as a presence and listens to them and gives voice to their stories, in some sense, it's almost like I'm their coach or I'm almost like alongside them and helping them in some way help them reclaim their autonomy, right? And so that when they have this voice, like in in martial arts, we learn how to kiop you know, when you, yeah, so when you, when you throw a punch, you key up at the same time, because you're expelling and giving voice to the force that you're using. And it's supposed to build confidence in you. And it's supposed to also kind of, in some way, intimidate your opponent with that, that part, you know, is a little bit much. Right. 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 But when you key up, there's actually a lot of force that's built, and you're kind of giving voice to your own confidence. And maybe in some way, maybe this sounds cheesy, and I, I haven't exactly intentionally done this, but maybe I'm giving that key up energy to my patients, that, that in some way, even though they're there in that bed, and they can't do everything that they want to, that they can use their voice to give voice to the story that they're carrying. And if they can tell somebody One person, a chaplain, whoever it is, this is what I'm going through and this is what hurts and this is what is my grief right now. They feel heard, they feel listened to, they feel like somebody cares and it's almost like I've coached them to a better place. And so I know I'm mixing a lot of metaphors in there, but I think part of that martial arts training it's a community. You know, when we were in the dojo, we all became friends. And when you endure and survive those exercises, you feel closer. You bond with these people. I mean, sure there were rivalries and stuff too, but in the end we were a team together. And the instructors, they were hard on us, but they also I I feel like in their own way they loved us and they wanted to see us better. And so maybe part of Chaplin, not all of it for sure, not the violence part, but the safety and sort of seeing the best in another person. I mean, I think that's what I can translate into the chaplain world.
0: You know, that's interesting because you know, um, people who grow up in the dojo, whether that's taekwondo or karate or anything, they're some of the, like the nicest people I know. Like they can <laughs> kick your head off, but like <laughs> the, that discipline and that calmness is just on another level. Um, but yeah, as you we were talking, just for uh, context for people who might be listening, so June is a chaplain at, at a hospital uh, mm-hmm. down in Florida. So that means you're, you know, besides a lot of people who might be in their final moments, you know, help the family, communicate with them, you know, different things. And wow, you, you must have seen a lot. But what even makes it particularly interesting is that you're an ex-atheist. Now, there are two sides of this, right? You're an ex-atheist who... Didn't just now believes in God and just living his normal life. He actually became a chaplain, so that's crazy. And <laughs> <laughs> typically, you don't hear immigrants being atheists. So you know, there, there's all, always a strong culture of religion, whether that's the Christian religion or some other type of religion from the country you're coming from. Atheism is kind of like a Western thing for the most part, but man, like that's a, what happened? That's a full 180 from being an atheist to now being a chaplain. Like what, what's the deal? Why were you an atheist when you were younger? And what made you flip around to the extent that not only are you believing in God and being normal, but being a chaplain in a sense, you're also propagating that faith, you know, for other people. What's the story there?
1: You know what, if we had a whole nother episode to do. I, mm-hmm. I could expand on this so much. I'll try to make it short for, I'll give you the short version. Right. But I say this with all due respect, of course, to my friends who are atheists and I I'm, I can only share my story, you know? But uh, when I was growing up, I found out very early on that my parents didn't mean to have me. They didn't plan for me. I was kind of a, you know, what they, I think, crudely call a oops baby. I found that out early oh, we, on. We
0: call it a love child.
1: right. Right. <laughs> So, I guess I maybe I was a dramatic kid or something, but I believe that I was uh, like a cosmic accident. And every time I did something good, I was earning my stay.
0: Wait, wait, t- wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Like, did you know that as a kid?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. I probably shouldn't have known that, but it did mess me up. And I internalized that uh, as part of my story. And so, when I did something good, like, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I I get to live a little bit longer, you know, or I'm here for a reason. But every time I did something bad, it was like I was messing up the timeline or something like that, you know? And so, uh, after a while, I became pretty cynical and nihilistic, and just thought, "I'm not here for a reason. I'm just here by accident. Everything is an accident. It's all haphazard, upside down. Who cares?" You know. And so, when I started going to church, this was probably in my uh, later years of high school. I went to play drums at this Korean church, and I just went kind of as a social like club. Like I I got to meet up people. And Korean churches, they serve food after service. And (laughs) sign me up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the pastor was funny. I liked him Uh, and I like playing drums, you know, but I started finding out that these people that went, they loved in such a supernatural way. And I thought it was impossible. And I extrapolated backwards. There was no argument. There was no like apologetics that convinced me that came later, like learning about what Christianity is about. But I saw these people who had this impossible love. And I thought, where is this coming from? because you know it, it's not natural to me. And so I know that's probably kind of a corny answer, but really it was the love of the church that brought me to feel like there's something that's more than the natural. There's something supernatural here. And it took years and years. I mean, when I went to seminary, to be truthful between you and me, but I know other people are gonna hear this. <laughs> I don't think I was quote unquote, fully a Christian or fully awakened into faith when I entered seminary. I entered seminary with the thought if I get this degree, I can help people. You know, I can give back to the church uh, that helped me. Uh, But it wasn't probably till my final year of seminary that I really started to get it, that I really started to wake up into faith. And I started to have like this relationship with God. And I, I really started to pray and and have this outworking of faith intentionally, you know? And so it's not some overnight thing. It wasn't just like a light bulb went on or a click, you know? It just took many, many days and and, and nights of wrestling. And even now I still have lots of doubts. Even now I, I still love reading atheist literature because it really does fill me. Um, and I'm skeptical all the time. I mean, I still am am a very, probably this is very westernized, but I need evidence and I'm an empirical person. And and that That probably
0: makes you relatable to a lot of people, I can imagine. (laughs) Because like you said, you know, um, when you were in the church, like you looked at it that this seems like this can't be real. Like this looks like these guys are just living in a bubble or some kind of thing. And you see this with a lot of not just Christians, a lot of people from other religions, like look, come down to the real world. So maybe that it's funny, like all. Your experience like from internalizing or internal racism when you were younger when you moved to Florida training and discipline you went through in the dojo knocking heads with your dad like being an atheist discovering Christianity on your own terms like it almost feels like it's a journey that was kind of like predetermined to teach you different things. Because you have a book, right? Like The Voice We Carry. And yeah. there's no better time to have a book like this in this world because there's so much distraction out there, God. Like from Instagram, like I record a podcast to a million and one podcast to the, the, our relationship to race relations, politics all these things, there's so much distraction out there. But you you wrote this book, The Voice We Carry, finding your one true voice in a world of clamor and noise. Like what led you to kind of like write that book. And did you have any personal experience why, where you found your own voice in a world of noise that made you then translate it to people who read your book? Yeah,
1: again, by the way, you're a great listener because you just recapped this whole interview. You're really, really good at what you do. I just got to pause and say that appreciate it. Bro. Yeah, I, yeah. So I, I appreciate you. You're asking incredible questions. I, I'm having a good time right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that book, I mean, it really came out of my chaplain experience the last six years. Uh, that training was a year and a half started uh, in 2015. And we wrote reflections every week. And those reflections became the backbone of the book. And I, was, I have this very sacred access of visiting patients uh, in crisis or who are on their deathbeds or or they're, they're suffering. And I would keep hearing the same kinds of voices over and over. And so I just started kind of compiling that and I didn't have plans on turning it into a book, Uh, but I I started to realize this is something that could possibly be shared with the world, you know? And I I had to change a lot of the details, you know, of course, to preserve uh, the patient's privacy. But yeah, I realized in my own self that when I was interfacing, interacting with a patient, they carried voices and so did I, you know? They carry voices. Yeah, voices of their father, right? We were talking about my dad voices of trauma from really hard events that they went through. The voice of their third grade teacher who said something mean to them that they never forgot. They could be carrying voices like hashtags, headlines, who they are as a person, internalized racism. They could be carrying the grief, the vacuum of somebody that they've lost in their life. They could be carrying the voice of, I know I said fathers already, but our family of origin, whether that's our parents or the people we grew up with, they have a large influence in who we become. A voice of people pleasing, the voice of self-doubt. We all carry these different voices and I just started picking them out and really listening. And then I realized as a chaplain in my role, I also had these different voices. Uh, that were telling me certain things, certain narratives about who I am and how to operate in the world and how to look at other people. Um, And we each have these voices that tell a story, you know. And so I put the book together in hopes that we could really listen into those voices and that for the most part, even though there's a negative edge to a lot of these voices, in some ways, if we really listen and unscramble uh, those signals that there's probably something good in there too. Like we were talking about culture, how there's that good part of culture, but then there's also kind of the toxic subcultures around it. So so I'll, I'll give you an example, like the voice of people pleasing, right? The voice of people pleasing is basically, if I can keep everybody happy around me and please people and, and make sure that they're all okay, then I am creating a safe world around me of people who approve of me. And so I don't have to experience rejection. I don't have to experience disapproval. However, if I keep giving myself away to people and saying yes when I really mean no, then I'm basically, yeah, Mm. right. I'm creating this safe world at the expense of my soul. Now, people-pleasing is not, that bad in itself, it just means that you care, right? If you if you care about other people's feelings, that's the good part of that voice, that it's like a caregiver or a compassionate person who wants to see people happy. So pleasing people is not bad, but people pleasing is when we give away ourselves instead of giving of ourselves. And so there's something good about it. What's the good part we can keep? We find the good, keep the good, but we reject the part of it, that is actually eating away at us. So it's Mm. all these different voices I kept hearing. I mean, even the voice of my dad, there are parts that now I can look back and I don't hear my dad's voice as, oh, I got to reject the whole thing. Or there are some parts he said that I used to believe that I don't believe anymore because I found my own voice in the midst of that.
0: Oh, wait, 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 wait. That's super interesting. Cause when I was reading the synopsis for this book, I thought you meant like there are all these voices like teachers, dad, different things that you have to do away with those voices and find your true voice. But what you're saying is that sometimes your true voice is lost within some of all those toxic voices you grew up listening to. Kind of yeah. in a sense that from people who you might not have necessarily agreed with, there might actually be some value in there that might contribute to that true voice. Yes. So it's to learn to sift. Oh, interesting. I yeah, never I sp- thought about it that way.
1: You know, I'll, I'll spoil a- the book a little bit. Yeah. I mean, at the last part, I talk about how most people, most experiences, we can learn something from that and make it a part of ourselves, right? So mm-hmm. I have a nine month old daughter now. One day when she grows up, she will decide for herself what parts of my mom and what parts of my dad were meaningful for me and gave me value that I want to keep. And what are the parts that are not for me? So maybe she might reject 95% of the things I told her, right, who knows? But there are probably parts in there just like for my own father, even though he wasn't always the best, he did the best he could do. There are parts I certainly want uh, to keep. And then each of us also have our own voice, Right. Uh, For me, I would say that's our God given kind of divine voice that he that God gives us. Right. So when I look at my daughter, like she's a little bit like my wife, she's a little bit like me. I can see her person, my daughter's personality coming out. But then there's this third mystery part. That's just my daughter. It's not from my wife.
0: That's that's Twitter, (laughs) (laughs) right?
1: Oh, Instagram. (laughs) Oh Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So that's, you know, that third mystery part. I feel like that's that's the person that God made her to be or oh. you know so so that's her voice and one day she's going to find what what elevates that voice what amplifies her voice what what adds value to that and so yeah so the book is certainly not about we got to throw out everything but it's rather discerning or filtering or investigating you know kind of sifting through the thoughts and feelings around those voices and saying here's what I'm going to keep here's what I can dismiss
0: Right, right. I mean, I know we can't talk about the whole book, but for our (laughs) listeners, is that one practical, I, I like to live in practicality, right? Is there one practical thing that people can do to find their voice? This can be, you know, an exercise. Or, you know, I don't know whether that's uh, finding closure with people who might have hurt you, whether that's, you know, controlling some things around you that you can control. Like, what's one thing you think that can start people on the process that, you know, when they then feel that they can say, you know what, let me go buy this book so I can then read through this thing and see how I can find my voice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in one uh, chapter of the book, I think it's chapter... Uh, 11, Uh, there's 12 chapters in the book. I talk about finding our non-negotiables. Those are the values, that we will not negotiate on, that we want to bring to every room and that we look for in every room, right? And so everybody's gonna have different non-negotiables or we may have the same kinds of non-negotiables, but we're going to uh, manifest them in different ways. So this is all for my supervisor. Shout out to my supervisor, my chaplain. She actually in the supervision sat me down and said, what are your non-negotiables? Nobody had ever asked me that. This was like five, six years ago. And so I wrote down three and it wasn't hard to find them because these were values that I've already known for a long time but I didn't actually sit down and write them out. And for me, it's uh, it's grace, it's justice, and it's expression, right? Grace, to embrace somebody's whole story. Uh, justice, to see healing in areas where there are gaps in restoration, right? And then expression, what is my art or what is my uh, production or creativity that I want to bring into the world And how can I help other people find their expression? And so these are the values I want to bring into a room and that I look for in every room. And so I don't know if, you know, maybe people are starting to do this now. I don't want to act like people have never done this or that I'm saying anything new, but I've noticed that maybe a lot of people either haven't sat down and said okay what are my non-negotiables or they may know them but they just kind of forget when they enter a room okay this is what I'm about and so in finding our voice it, we keep finding it over and over right and it's like with practice and it's like with using it it's, it's not, like a, it's,
0: it's not like an aha moment you grow into <laughs> it like you keep finding aspects of your voice and you keep it's pretty interesting I think I'm gonna yeah. order your book like I tried to like I interviewed so many people like I I you You know, um, I should read every book, you know, before I interview, but I try to like, you know, sift through the synopsis. And I like what I loved what I see and I like what I hear. I think I'm going to read that and maybe have you on the podcast so we can talk about this in depth. Um, But yeah, before we kind of like wrap up the interview, let's talk a little bit about race relations. I mean... You talked about there being, uh, you know, anti-Black sentiments in the Asian community. And I think even though I'm not African-American, I'm Black, like I can also say for the Black community, there's somewhat of an anti-Asian sentiment as well that, you know, you have all these stores, um, you know, restaurants and stores in, you know, the hoods of America for the most part that are uh, mostly run by like um, minorities, Asians included, and, um, you know, black people have just developed a sentiment based off how they've been treated or maybe based off a certain perception like and this you saw this uh during the anti asian you know hate that was you know, prevalent during the COVID-19 yeah. um, pandemic and even uh, now. Like that was such an interesting time because it's always, that was the first time I saw, because it was always like, oh, you know, this is when you think racism for the most part, you think kind of like, oh, you know, white people There's systemic racism, a certain race is controlling all the resources. But it was the first time I kind of like saw like two minorities for the most part kind of like going at it. Like that was pretty interesting to see and first generation immigrants like your parents and probably my parents are mostly set in their ways we as your kids we try to explain to them that no that they say oh you know don't bring a person from this race home or don't interact or don't do this don't do that what do you think how important do you I mean one of the reasons I started this podcast because I'm genuinely interested in other cultures how important do you think openness is in you know both communities both the black community and the asian community that do you think there is value there that we have to kind of like open up to each other to give each other kind of like allowance to explore each other's cultures and give each other a benefit of the doubt let's start there
1: yeah man that is a a perfect question uh to kind of explore this is sort of an elephant in the room right because you know It seems like there has been tension throughout the history of Black and Asian relationships.
0: And a lot of love too, not just tension. It's a weird mix. There's a lot of love for both cultures and also a lot of tension as well.
1: And that's what I want to point to is that I think the tensions are overemphasized and the solidarity is overlooked. It's not seen as much. And so, you know, when you were saying earlier about, you know, we could, we could, blame it on one thing or another, as far as like this group of people or something like that. I mean, I'm going to say something that's probably not very popular. But, you know, in the 1960s, when the China Exclusion Act was finally repealed, and then we had Asian American, uh, Asian immigrants that were finally able to come to the US, right? I'll try to give a very short history. But basically, they were given essentially stipends. They were uh, and the the Asians who came, a lot of them were already educated because the US would only allow a certain quote unquote type of Asian to come in, like some of the good ones, right? And so they were given resources, they were given you know, money and that the ones that were brought were already educated. So when they came here, they felt like it was a privilege and they worked really hard and then westernized white media. And again, I know this is not gonna be popular, but what we could call white supremacy, right? And I'm just gonna straight up use that term. They began to point to the Asian immigrants, and basically side-eye the Black community and say, why can't y'all be like them? That was the message that was given. And so this tension was stirred by Westernized media, and therefore, it's so discord between the Black and Asian community. Now, the Asian community, when they came here in the 60s, they didn't know about the history of civil rights. They didn't know about the history of slavery. Maybe they knew a tiny little bit, but they didn't know the suffering of all of that, the Jim Crow laws and all those kinds of things. And so when they're seeing the Black community getting upset because they're being compared to the Asian community, it really escalated, you know? And then you got to the uh, 1990s with the, you know, it all culminated it with the LA riots. When you look at all of that, where did the source of all that tension come from? Now, certainly you can put some responsibility on those communities. I put responsibility on myself and my community for anti-Blackness, but where did that, come from. And you see the narratives that were uh, stitched into uh, basically media at the time, which was consolidated so much that you're only reading kind of one source or one station or one paper, right? And so when you look, though, throughout uh, immigrant history and throughout people of color's history in America, you do see a lot of Black and Asian solidarity. And you see even after the LA riots, even after the very unfortunate and tragic and horrific shooting of Latasha Harlins by a Korean store owner, uh, Sunjae Do. I think, was her name. I mean, that I completely condemn what she did. Um, you know, and that stoked even more tensions. Even after all of that, when all the stores were destroyed and there was millions of dollars worth of damage, black and the Black and Asian community still wanted to walk hand in hand and come to peace and reconciliation and restoration, right? And then you look at civil rights activists like Yuri Kochiyama, who famously walked with Malcolm X and she was the one who held Malcolm X's body right after he was assassinated. I mean, you look at these little pockets and these kind of stories of this solidarity and that's what I wanna emphasize is that the Black and Asian communities at their best have always been in solidarity and even through the worst have been in solidarity. And where does the worst come from? And again, I know that's not going to be a popular opinion. And I and I know that when I say that in evangelical churches or when I say that to my white friends, they're like, oh, you're that's a conspiracy theory. You're making that up. Or they don't like the term white supremacy. Uh, but here's my kind of call to action on all of this is for us, and I say this for the Asian community, to remember our history with other people of color. Because we have throughout our history being here have walked hand in hand with the black community. And there has been purposeful discord sown because when people of color walk together, uh, we become stronger and we get action done. And the powers that be don't necessarily like to see that, you know, the old guard holds on really, really tight. And so again, that's not going to be a popular opinion, but I want to remind everybody who's listening, whoever they are, that we come from a people who have struggled and suffered together and that our communities were set against each other. Uh, But when we look and see our communities have survived and walked with each other, and that's always been our goal. And so when we see these videos, for example, it seems like all these videos of anti-Asian hate are of these young black men who are attacking old Asian people. But you know, 75 to 90% of these hate crimes against the Asian community are actually
0: perpetuated by white individuals. People don't actually look at the data. They look at the optics. Like, yeah, people they look are at not, the optics. Optics are more than the data nowadays. Yeah. You know?
1: And un- unfortunately, I think certain hate crimes are underreported or people decide not to record certain things or what's shown on the news, it's sensationalized. But, you know, westernized media hasn't changed. What is sensational will make it to the news. And if you can show, quote, unquote, a scary or angry Black man attacking an old Asian person, that for some reason makes better news. And it's terrible. And unfortunately, according to the data, that's a myth. And that is an overrepresentation of something that now it does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Those videos are there, but the data shows 75 to 90 percent white individuals. And if I were to ask those individuals who committed those crimes, I would just love to do some kind of psychological survey. Like what led you to that? Was it the China virus hashtag? Was it our ex-president who sowed that kind of hatred so that you look at an Asian person and think, oh, they're the reason we're on lockdown? You just kind of trace it back, trace it back, and you see the violence is always tied to some kind of narrative, that wasn't perpetuated by communities of color.
0: Yeah. It came from the outside. You know, it, it's interesting you, you say all that and you were talking on a lighter note, you were talking about, you know, being straightforward using all those terms and, you know, people might consider you a conspiracy theorist. I was, I was like, I'll think, well, you do live in Florida, you know, that's what I But that, that aside, um, it's interesting you say that, like you talk about media, right? And this is what a lot of people that I listened to were talking about during the election. They were like, our number one problems aren't Democrats, or our number one problems aren't Republicans, at the media always acts like this neutral party, but they're actually causing more divisiveness than we've ever seen like in many, many years. And we actually thought that, um, you know, social media and technology can solve that. Oh, you know, technology, they democratizing a lot of things. But with the way the algorithms are working, I remember when I first downloaded Instagram, it was like a chronological timeline. You just scroll and scroll. But now if you like one picture of of, you know, someone twerking or whatever, all your feed is about that, that kind of thing. So it's almost like technology is making it worse that everyone can exist in this particular bubble, can find their particular community everywhere online. And you're just They just keep feeding you and your world is all about that. It's not like those days that you could watch CNN and watch Fox. So like maybe the real um, enemy are the people who are like promoting this optics and, you know, kind of like blinding people from the data. Even though as people, we do have a responsibility, like you said, to remember, you know, that, look, this is not necessarily from the community, but it takes like an external person To come and like sow those seeds of discord that makes us, you know, start fighting amongst each other. So, but. Obviously, it's going to be like a gradual process. Uh, we're not going to solve this in one day. Um, but let me ask you this. And you kind of like answered that question already. Like my question is going to be, how do we find our voice as a community, both in the Black community and the Asian community? You said, you know, should remember those times where we come because we love Black people. We love Asian culture. Like you see it in hip hop, <laughs> you see it in our movies, you see like Asian people as well. You know, vice versa, there are a lot of Asian people in Africa, like, you know, but like, how do we find our voice just to kind of like wrap up the episode as a community? Yeah.
1: So Nosa, so I want to real quick, just 30 seconds. The thing you said about media, I 100% agree. I want to make sure that I give a shout out to journalists who are doing really hard work and uh, uncovering, you know, hard stories, revealing cases of abuse and things like that. I mean, I, I give... Big shout out to journalism and journalists who are doing it right. I do think media, it's a two-way street. You know, media will pick up the stories that they think will get clicks and views. And then it's the hashtags that kind of determine what the people want. And then the media will keep feeding them that. So it's its all about creating a certain kind of appetite and people like that. And then they'll keep kind of feeding off of that media. So unfortunately, you know, I, I do want to kind of blame the media too. And at the same time, it's like they're giving the people what they want you know, their own little silo, their own little group. So you'll have this one news station, they know what their fan base wants, and they'll cater to them, you know, and so I don't know, it's a weird kind of dragon eating its own tail type of situation, you know, and I could probably say more on that. But I'll, I'll just, I'll just leave it there that I don't want to completely blame the media. It, it's a little bit on us too. And those kinds of groups, especially the more hateful types of groups that are going to escalate and continue to feed into what the media is showing them. But in case, yeah, to answer your other question about how does our community find a voice? So, you know, this shouldn't be on any community to do like, you know, you've probably heard this before, but those who are educators, it's not their responsibility to educate somebody but instead it's the other person's responsibility to pick up the material that the educator is already giving in order to inform themselves right an educator can't answer 5000 uh, dms <laughs> you know in their instagram or facebook and at the same time I, so i 100% agree with that at the same time like i wish that we had more stories told about our communities so that people will see that we have hopes and dreams and anxieties Like everybody else, you know, because when certain movies, when certain entertainment, I know that that looks like it's superfluous, like, oh, it's just art, what does art do? But the more art that we put out into the world, the more we express who we are, the beauty of our culture, the stories that we survive, the immigration story, and not just the suffering, but also the triumphs and also the accomplishments and also the beauty of our, you know, all of that, our heritage, uh, then we become more humanized you know because it's hard to dehumanize someone once you know their story once you get up close once they're known
0: you can then see yourself in them mm. yeah
1: exactly and so when you have like movies like this year coming out that marvel movie that's coming out Shang-Chi with you know Simu Liu and and Aquafina when you have uh these these wonderful movies that are now showcasing and highlighting people of color stories in many ways it humanizes them so that in pop culture, they're no longer seen as a punchline or a second class. And art has a big way of influencing the way we perceive people and who they are. Because once you put something out in the pop culture or once you have a particular narrative that's out there, it can kind of work its way back into policy and into systems and the way that we perceive people on the street. And so maybe I'm giving art too much credit and I want to make sure, you know, that's not the only way that we can do this. There's but obviously- one it's, way. Yeah, it's one way. I mean, there's like systemic political stuff. There's There's all kinds of things we can do in the workplace and college campuses. But the one way when you asked, when you said about voice, you know, the more that we have venues to humanize our stories, though, it shouldn't be our responsibility to do that, because it's almost Mm -hmm. like you should see me as human anyway. But unfortunately, that's not the baseline. But the more stories that we can get out there, the more I think that we will see each other. What's what's so funny is that I, I take this as both a weird thing and a compliment. I'll have sometimes people ask me, like they'll lean in. No son, no kidding. I've I've had this question more than once and they'll look at me and they go, Hey, I know you got a black belt. Can you fly? Can you fly though? What? <laughs> like they'll ask me, I've been asked that more than once. They'll be like, hey, can you fly though? What and do you I'll mean like, fly? You mean like and I'll the be like, movies? what do you mean? Right. And they're they're like hey you know like in those like crouching tiger. Can you oh, can you fly like that? I figured.
0: Oh and God. There's this oh,
1: weird, like it's kind of racist, but they're also like admiring me, I guess. And so there's a part of me that's like okay, that's cool that they're respecting a part of my legacy. Like I I, I I, do martial arts. And so there's a part of that that I'm trying to like be optimistic and like, okay, maybe they meant that as respect. Maybe they meant that as like, they're trying to give me, you know, props or something. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, but we need more stories. That's not just Asian guys, Kung Fu guy, right? Yeah. And so how do we do that? I mean, we just keep writing. We keep telling our stories. We keep sharing who we are. We keep sharing how we got here. So I may not be able to answer every single racist. I may not be able to answer every single message in my inbox, but I'm going to keep sharing my story and who I am. And that's what we can do as a community.
0: Facts, facts. Well said. And You know, as you were saying that, I was just thinking about this uh, ninety. I think it was Waiting to Exhale or something. It was <laughs> yeah. this movie that came out in 94 and 95. That was the first black movie I watched that I didn't consider a black movie. Like before then, there were a lot of stereotypes about, you know, blacks in movie, and this was a black movie, and this is Tyler Perry, and this is Hollywood. And that was the first movie, like, it was all black characters, but waiting to excel with like Whitney Houston and Wesley Snipes and all those guys. Like I was just engrossed in the story, yeah. not the characters, yeah. you know, talking about you, about humanizing our story and how we can use art as a weapon, you know, and which is kind of like what we're doing here. Like this is a podcast. It's not like a big production, but in our own little way, maybe we can plant that seed in, you know, one or three, two or three or four listeners that can then go on to have a nine month old daughter like yourself and, you know, kind of like bring up their kids and bring up another generation to think differently. And, you know, hopefully we keep chipping away at it bit by bit and we can make that happen. Man, June, I really appreciate you taking our time to talk to me today. Um, thank you so much. I know we went over a little bit. um How do people reach out to you, man? Like if people want to uh, connect with you, are you on social media? Yeah. If people want to, uh, you know, find more, find out more about your book, how do they? um
1: Yeah, I'm J.S.
0: Park on Instagram,
1: Facebook, and Twitter. So j.s.park. And uh, my book is called The Voices We Carry. That's on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. You know, since the pandemic, I actually haven't gone into a bookstore to buy my own book. I got to go do that. I'm going to record. You got to take the picture, man. Like, hey. Oh, man. I <laughs> got to do me. it. Maybe I'll man, live
0: stream that. Man, Borders yep. is already gone before Baron Barnes and Noble leaves. Like, you got ah, to get that I used photo. To love Borders. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a
1: good time.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, to our listeners, as usual, it's Culture Class Podcast everywhere. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you think. Leave us a comment on our website, and you can actually drop voice notes on our website now. So it's cultureclasspodcast.com tell us what you think and let's keep the conversation going all right guys till next time be well